0: We're reading verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left all; they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called David because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And there, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth.
1: Okay, our reading in Genesis 11, verse 1 starts. Now, the whole earth had one language, the same words. This indicates that the people were a united whole. This does not chronologically follow last week's sermon on the table of nations. Nations means divisions. This goes back to the beginning of the table of nations, to the sons of Noah, and it explains why people divided up into separate groups and why a multitude of languages are spoken. It's good to understand how Moses constructed uh, this narrative. He is using the literary device, the palatrope, as he did in the account of the flood story, to focus our minds on the central truth of this narrative. In the flood story, he used numbers, ascending, 7, 7, 40, and 150, and then descending, 150, 47 and 7. And in the middle was, and God remembered Noah, the beasts and the animals. Out of the whole flood story, Moses wanted us to focus on that in the midst of that terrible outpouring of his wrath against sinful mankind, the great takeaway was, and God remembered Noah. God's mercy to Noah and all in the ark. In this narrative of the Tower of Babel, Moses again uses the Palletrape, not with numbers, but this time with words. At the start, words relating to man, and at the end, in reverse order, words relating to God. So how it works, in verse 1, we have the whole earth had one language and the same words. In verse 9, we have the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Verse 2, the people found a plain and settled there. In verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there. In verse 3, the people said, come, let us make bricks. Verse 7, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. In verse 4, the people say, let us build a city and a tower. In the last part of uh, verse 5, The Lord sees the city and the tower that mankind had built. What is the focal point of this Tower of Babel narrative? The first part of verse 5. The Lord came down. The Lord came down. That is what Moses wants us to focus on. This narrative of the Tower of Babel also demonstrates history. You may have heard people say that the Bible is history, capital H, his story. It is certainly God's story, but it is also small h, history, the history of mankind. The Bible tells us who we are, what we have done, why we are the way we are, and why the world is the way the world is. In this tower of Babel narrative, verses 1 to 4 are telling us mankind's history. Verses 5 to 9, running parallel to mankind's history, overruling mankind's history, is God's story, his story. It's very clear in this narrative, but it's actually true for the whole of the Bible. Two histories are presented to us, mankind's history running parallel to and defined by God's history, his story. What we know is, and we see in this passage, is that when God comes down to earth, acts. He conforms mankind's story to his purpose, history. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says, many are the plans of the minds of men, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Other Proverbs, Psalms and James say the same thing. Man plans, God decides. Our passage does not actually mention any names. It doesn't tell us who built the Tower of Babel. The passages before and after are lists of names. Before in chapter 10 is Noah's descendants by his three sons. Following this Tower of Babel narrative is an expanded commentary of Shem's descendants. Babel is a bridge between these two lists. This narrative helps us to explain the Table of Nations and the singling out of Shem's line. They also link directly back into Babel informing us about Babel. So a little bit of revision of the descendants of uh, Noah in uh, Table of tens nation, only two are singled out. They are Peleg, who is Shem's great-great-grandson, and in chapter 10, verse 25, it says, for in his days the earth was divided. This is a reference to the fact that he was alive when the Tower of Babel was built. From Shem's line came the Semites, covering many nations, but through Peleg, the line of Abraham and all the forefathers down to the Lord Jesus. That is why Shem's line is focused on after this uh, Babel narrative. The second guy who is elaborated upon is Nimrod. We read about him in chapter 10, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Then it goes on to list the land that he had authority over. So reading this from my middle-class Western church culture perspective, this guy sounds like he's got a lot. Recommend him. Mighty man, mighty hunter, particularly as it's before the Lord. However, he was the grandson of Ham, who committed grievous sin against his own father Noah. And they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The last time we heard of a mighty man was in relation to the sons of God and Nephilim. And as reminded last week, we concluded that these mighty men were evilly possessed had risen to positions of power and rode roughshod over those who were under them. Nimrod is the first mighty man we hear of since the flood. The word mighty hunter can also be interpreted as tyrant. He has been described as a mighty hunter, not of animals, but of man. The name Nimrod actually means rebellion. All these coincidental names are pointing to him being a tyrant in rebellion against God and his fellow man. The territory he ruled over in Genesis 10.10 begins with Babel, where this tower up to the heavens was built. It speaks of him going to other places and building other cities. Apparently, these other places he was encroaching onto were portions of land that were occupied by Shem's descendants. So it looks like he had become a violent threat to God's people. Jewish writers such as Josephus and the writings including the Talmud, which is a a commentary uh, on religious writings by hundreds and thousands of rabbis really, support this view. He was seen as a powerful man who struts around before everybody, God included beating his chest and saying, look at me. Our reading in uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 starts out. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This shows the initial unity between Noah and his sons. The unity started to unravel with Noah. Him being assaulted by his son, Ham. A couple of generations pass and we come to Peleg and Nimrod. It's doubtful that it has remained a unity of cooperation, but has become a cooperation by coercion, indicated by Nimrod taking over Shem's descendants' territory. Surprised? We all experience life in families, with everyone having a falling nature inherited from Adam. Some branches of our families get along, Others are always skirmishing, if not at outright war, with each other. Some family members are timid and others are bold. The bold nearly always exert influence over the timid. It appears Nimrod has become so bold that he has developed a fearsome reputation and has greatly extended his sphere of influence. He'd become a tyrant. How do you get sinful mankind to be united, to cooperate, to work together? You force them to do it. Every communistic country has a dictator and a supporting power structure. Re-education camps in China are forced labor camps. President Xi is a mighty Nimrod. Now, Nimrod wants recognition as to what a mighty man he has become. He calls his family and his cronies together and they decide to build a city, an impressive tower, a monument to him and his family. Nimrod's life might be shortened, but the power structure of family and cronies that he has established around him will continue on even after he has died. Genesis 11.2 says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. We've seen that moving from the east means moving away from God, from the Garden of Eden. Here they're actually moving east from Mount Ararat, where the ark had come to settle. But moving east still means that they're moving away from God. Verse 3 says, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bitumen for mortar. They made bricks because stone was scarce on this plain. It does, however, point out that this is all about men and what they do. When altars were to be built, they were to be built out of natural stone and no tool was to be used upon them, emphasis being on what God provided, what was natural. These bricks were then made out of clay and they were baked a labor-intensive process. Verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their desire to settle there and not continue in their migration was an act of rebellion against God, who desired that they would fill the whole earth and multiply upon it. Josephus, that first century um, historian, believes that Nimrod is building a tower up to the heavens, waterproofed with pitch so that he and the people that he is influencing to follow him can escape any future judgment of God if God should flood the world again. Other writers see this tower that it pierces up into heaven so that they can kill God. The belief is Nimrod, the tyrant, is saying to the people, if you want to be truly happy, follow me. I'm a great man. I have a plan to outwit God's judgment with my tower into the heavens. We don't need God. He is redundant. We can build a megacity with skyscrapers. We can all live together under my rule and we'll take care of each other and life will be truly great without all of God's demands upon us. We'll all have a great time. Life will be wonderful. This is the philosophy of our culture. That's what people want. So they abandon God and embrace the lifestyle sold to them by men. God has effectively been killed off in their minds. I once flew over Myanmar from Yangon to Mandalay, which is on the floodplain of the Irrawaddy River. You can see the land all divided up. And on the larger sized blocks, there were these really exotic towers reaching up into the sky. It was very picturesque. The wealthy landowners were competing with each other as to who could build the most impressive tower, receive the greatest acclaim. Men don't live eight or 900 years, but they want to leave a legacy. They want their names to be great. The pharaohs wanted to be remembered. Their legacy was the pyramids. Architects want to be remembered by the buildings that they designed. Donald Trump, by the tower that he had built and he plastered his name all over. Is Mr. Trump's tower his legacy? Men want to have sons so that their family name will continue. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. The only truly great names are those made great by God. Our greatest claim will be that we were called the children of God. Their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The last part of verse 4 expresses the fear these mighty men have, lest we be dispersed over all the earth. Why is this their fear? Well, the passage doesn't say But my guess is if the people are dispersed, then the number of folk that mighty men have influence over and can exploit is much less. Some people thrive on power, take away or reduce uh, that power or the people that they can exert it over or the people that they can exploit and they become small in other people's eyes. But they also feel small in their own eyes. Their name means nothing anymore to them. They feel worthless Unless they are the centre of attention, the head of the parade, the mighty man. Mr. Trump was reluctant to leave office when it was clear that he had lost the election. It hurt his pride. He refused to acknowledge it as truth. It's been rigged. It's a lie. That was his claim. Men's whole sense of self-worth can be tied up in their ambitions and the image of them as a mighty man that they project. Restrict this and they are belittled and shamed. You see this with leaders all the time. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. Imagine the condescension in this. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that they came, coming down to look at this construction of mud brick and tar that mankind was producing to glory in, when the handiwork of God was all around them. glorying in mudrick and tar, when the glory of God is all around. How foolish is that? This is the foolishness that all mankind have fallen into. How does anything that man has done compare with anything that God has done? How foolish to think that there can be a comparison. If that's what we do when we ignore God, go our own way, do our own thing, take charge of our own lives. We would rather grovel with mud and tar than partake in the splendor of God that is there for us to glory in. We do this individually. We do it collectively. We join with others willingly or maybe we are coerced into it. That coercion can be subtle or can be overwhelmingly brutal. The most subtle coercion is social pressure. Everybody is doing it, having a good time. I want part of that, just a bit of fun. What harm is it, hey? So we turn from the eternal God to seek transitory, momentary pleasure. Coercion comes from the workplace. You must conform to the ethos of the workplace. If you don't, you won't advance get promotions or pay rises, and you could even be sacked. So you can form. That's the way to get ahead. Coercion comes from the government. Australia has a very good government, but we are coerced by the government into doing many things that we wouldn't choose to do. Paying taxes, obeying the speed limit, wearing a mask in a pandemic. Otherwise, we could be fined or imprisoned. In other countries, the coercion is greater. Arrested on false charges in prison just suddenly disappear. In China, put into a re-education camp until you comply and sprout government policy. Under constant electronic surveillance, basic privileges given or withdrawn with your compliance or lack of it. In Myanmar, the ruling generals send the army out shooting men, women, boys and girls. You used to be Buddhists killing the Muslim Rohingya. The excuse, they're not of us, they are foreigners, but now it's their own people. Buddhists killing Buddhists. The violence is escalating. Any pretense of peaceful Buddhism is gone, or to maintain the power of the generals. All these types of coercion could be at play at Babel. Buildings of mud bricks stuck together with pits can look amazing. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were of baked mud brick and they are still considered to have been a wonder of the world. Now, many of the things that mankind has done are amazing, very impressive, but compared to what God has done, impressive enough to switch our allegiance and devotion from God to man. If you deny God, that's what you do. Who gave mankind gifts, abilities, knowledge to do great things? The giver of all great gifts is God. The problem is, is when we stop acknowledging God as the giver of all good gifts, using them for his glory, instead we glory in ourselves and use our gifts on our own selfish desires. God had to come down to see this city and tower. It was supposed to reach to the heavens, but it's so insignificant compared to anything else that he has created, it fell so far short of reaching to the heavens that he has to come down from heaven to see it. Thank the Lord. Praise God that he came down to see it. If we thought God shortening man's life from eighty or 800 or 900 years to 120 was a great mercy in limiting the amount of evil that one man could do, what he is about to do is just this wonderful just not more so God's intention is to continue in his purpose of preserving the people for himself Nimrod forcibly taking over territory from Peleg shows that God's people are constantly under threat from those who are not his people Nimrod is forcing people to look up to him rather than to God verse 6 the Lord said behold they are one people and they have one language And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Moses is explaining to us the need for God to intervene. Superficially, we could say that having one language, being one nation would have made teaching the gospel much easier. No need to translate the Bible into a myriad of languages and dialects. No need to try and overcome animosity to people that are different to you. That's true, but people take good things and they use them for their own purposes, turn them into bad things like Nimrod did. He was using this good thing, the commonality of language, against his fellow mankind, but more importantly, against God and all of his purposes. Evil unrestrained in one people with one language would have been catastrophic for mankind. One man or cohort of strong men could communicate and enforce their evil intentions upon everybody else. There would be no stopping them. God dividing mankind up into different language groups, different nations meant restraints, various restrictions were set in place to limit the effects of men's evil. Again, this is God coming down and acting in mercy. God's story overriding man's story. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We're going to spend our remaining time looking in the prophets and the New Testament to see what the outcome of God's coming down and acting at the Tower of Babel means for us. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old Testament and the Old Testament lies revealed in the New. In verse 5, God came down. He saw. And now in these verses, 7, 8, and 9, he acts. He confuses their language. We're not told how he does it. He just does it. We see as soon as they couldn't communicate, all cooperation ceased. They left off building the city. When they stopped cooperating, they moved away from each other. They dispersed. They had feared to do this because it makes men small and God great. Men gather together. When they do gather together, they become filled with bravado and they encourage it in each other. Egos get inflated. They measure themselves against each other and then they carry on in foolish, dangerous, just thumping waves. Disperse men so that they're alone and they feel small, insignificant by the presence of God all around them in his creation. They stop using each other as a measure to measure themselves against and they become overwhelmed by the power and majesty of God's handiwork, even if they refuse to acknowledge God himself. You put one or two people out in the wilderness and they become overawed by how insignificant they are being singled out alone. They are now suddenly dependent upon insignificant each other and they may even cause them to cry out to God. People often cry out to God in such a situation. God will achieve his purpose. He does it collectively with the whole of mankind, and he does it individually with each one of us. We can cooperate with his desires for our lives, or we can resist him. If we resist him, he will act, coming down and changing the circumstances of our life to suit his purposes. That is a hard and painful part to walk. If life is hard and we're constantly being frustrated, we may conclude that God is actively involved with us and praise him for it. But wouldn't it be so much better for us to cooperate with God and know his blessing on our lives instead? In Acts 17, verse 26, Paul preaching to the Athenians said, and God made from one man every nation of mankind on earth, on the face of all the earth. Note this having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far off from each one of us. He's saying this to unbelievers. In him we live and move and have our being. Everybody, believer, unbeliever, is totally dependent upon God, whether we recognise it or not. God from one man made all the nations and he determines how long those nations shall last and how far those nations shall spread. He puts limits on them. That is the purpose. is so that mankind may seek God, perhaps feeling their way towards him. How often has bad authority, bad government made you cry out to God? It's amazing how God is working, but there are more ways in which being and individual nations benefit us. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and they that exist have been instituted by God. Their purpose is to keep order in society. Without government authority and the order they instill, everybody would be doing their own thing, just like before the flood, and the world would descend into total anarchy. What God is saying that even bad government is better than no government. We have bad governments because all men have Adam's fallen nature and men do abuse their position and power. But God will decide how long they will be in power and what era, area of influence they will have. He raises up and he casts down. God uses nations to keep a check on other nations. They do this through diplomacy, through sanctions, by threats of war and by war itself. God uses sinful nation against sinful nation for his purposes. What we're seeing is that God from the very beginning is raising up a people for himself. We see it in him choosing Seth's line over Cain. We see it in God choosing Shem's line out of Noah's three sons. Abraham was the first of the patriarchs when God said to him in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make your name great. He also said, I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. From him came Isaac and from Isaac came Jacob. In Genesis 32, verse 28, we have the story of Jacob wrestling all night with God and prevailing. God touches his hip and disjoints it. Still, Jacob will not let him go until he receives God's blessing. And so God changes his name to Israel. For he has striven with God and men and prevailed. So it's by Jacob's new name, Israel, that God's people are then known. And their history is one of striving with God and men.
0: Underlying this
1: history of mankind is God's story, contained in the promise he made after the fall in the Garden of Eden. That Eve's offspring bruising Satan's head and Satan the offspring's heel. The nation of Israel looked for this offspring who was to come and defeat all that evil that is in the world. God deals with Israel in a very specific manner, giving them revelations of himself that were not given to any other nation. Israel received blessings from God that no other nation knew. He gave them the law by which they were to live and conduct their affairs. He gave them the oracles or the word of God through the prophets, that God sent to them. They all spoke of this one who was to come and rule over them. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 is a great statement of this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the government will be on his shoulder. His name, his name shall be wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. His kingdom will never be restricted. It will be established with judgment and justice forevermore. This promise runs right through the Old Testament. God continually comes down in the Old Testament and acts so that his promise is fulfilled. Moses experienced this. God coming down at the burning bush and commissioning him to lead God's people out of slavery. Moses watched while God dealt with the Egyptians with the ten plagues, watching the Egyptian army being destroyed in the Red Sea after Israel had safety passed through, meeting with God on Mount Sinai and receiving the law directly from him, being provided with manna and quail, water and clothes that don't wear out for 40 years in the wilderness, God causing mighty armies to fall before insignificant Israel, God using timid Gideon and 300 men to rout the mighty army. Israel army paralysed by the giant Goliath and God sends the shepherd boy, David, to kill the giant and the opposing army flees in terror. An enemy army encamped against terrified Jerusalem and God sends his fear into that army in the middle of the night and they rise up and flee, leaving all their equipment and baggage behind, not one blow struck. The battle is the Lord's, was Israel's catch cry. God kept coming down and acting, conforming men's story to his story. It is so amazing, Israel having this story. Why weren't they the greatest ambassadors for God that the world has ever known? How could they not speak of this to the surrounding nations? Be an influence for good. But they kept it to themselves and they envied the godless nations around about them. Does that strike a chord with us, how we live? God's own people were so seduced by the sinfulness of nations around them that they intermarried with them, worshipped their gods, practised their evil practices. Is that familiar? So God used enemy nations against them. God brought the Assyrians to sweep down onto the northern kingdom of Israel and carry off those ten rebellious tribes into captivity, spreading them through all the other nations that Assyria had uh, conquered so that they ceased to exist as a distinct people. God sending the Babylonians to the southern kingdom of Israel and carrying them off into captivity for 70 years, then mercifully and graciously, God turning the Babylonian king's heart to return all the treasure that his father had taken and giving it back to Ezra and Nehemiah so that they could go back with a remnant of God's people to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. The greatest, most magnificent way God comes down and changes the world is through the womb of an unknown virgin, Mary, the humblest of maidens. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom with the wise. A baby is born in a stable. Bade in a manger, wise men come and worship him. This is the promised Prince of Peace, on whose shoulders the government will rest Mighty God comes down to this earth and he comes as a baby. A baby named Jesus who would save his people from their sins. What foolishness is this? How those who are wise in their own eyes are confounded. What can a baby do? He did what they could not do, what you and I cannot do, and that is live a life that is pleasing to God. A life and perfect obedience in word, thought and deed to God and his law. And then it gets crazy. John 1.11, he comes unto his own, but his own receive him not. His own don't recognize him. This one they've been waiting thousands of years for. He comes, but they don't know him. They reject him. They've misunderstood their own scriptures. He hasn't come to make Israel mighty, a physical military nation, a great earthly kingdom. He has come to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Jesus came saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. To as many as received him who believed in his name, his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is spirit. This is a spiritual kingdom. This kingdom is like no other. The ruler of this kingdom is like no other. He doesn't rule by coercion and force. Rather, he draws us to himself by bands of love. He woos us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Listen to how he thinks of himself. Learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. What type of ruler is this? A ruler who is gentle and lowly of heart, whose yoke and burden is light and easy. A ruler who gives rest and who serves you. A ruler who dies to redeem his people. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. How shamefully we treat him. Yet he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God and with his wounds we are healed. How different he is to the mighty men of today, the Nimrods of the world. Despite our shameful treatment of rejecting him, hiding our faces from him, not wanting to look to him or know him, despite that, how great is his love for us? Dying, being smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised by his own father. He willingly suffered this in our place and God willingly poured out his wrath upon him so that we might be forgiven of our sin and rebellion. All this took place on a Roman cross and was instigated by Jewish leaders. That is human history. But it is God the Father whose righteousness and holiness required it. And it was God the Son who willingly suffered it in our place. That is God's story, his story. What foolishness is this? Who is this God that would do that? It is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers. This is their history but they don't know it because they, like sheep, have gone astray and each one has turned into his own way. God's kingdom is not of coercion, suppression and cruelty. God's kingdom is of peace. It's of peace because Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, gives us a new birth, a new heart, a new mind, a new outlook, a new nature. He alone can work this miracle in the depths of our souls. Jeremiah says of God, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. This new nation is not like any other kingdom. It doesn't have police, law courts and judges to force obedience upon its subjects. Obedience comes from within them. This new kingdom transcends every other kingdom, tribe and nation. They've all passed away. Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Ottomans, British Empire, a shadow of what it was. The great United States of America, not so great anymore. This new kingdom is called the church. And it transcends every nation. It's not just Jews, it's people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth. Jesus said to his disciples, Go out into all the world and preach the gospel. People in the church don't distinguish themselves by their race, their language, their colour, their status, their power, or any other thing. They see themselves as all equal in the sight of God, each one humbled before God as a sinner, saved only by the grace of God. We're all Christians. Followers of Christ, fellow heirs with Jesus, children of God, our race, our nationality doesn't count any longer. God came down at Pentecost and empowered the disciples with the Holy Spirit to preach with great boldness, stand up to the Jewish authorities, risk being put to death. They would rather obey God than man. Even then, they were reluctant to go out. The early Christians hung around Jerusalem congregating together. Sounds familiar. So in the church, God's own kingdom, he came down and he acted. He stirred up the Roman Empire against the early church, committing shocking acts of persecution against Jesus' followers until they too finally dispersed throughout the then known world, preaching the gospel to all mankind. God doesn't leave it to the mercy of his own children. It is his mercy that acts, his mercy that saves. It's a great thing to congregate together, but don't make it about each one of us. It's always about God. If we make it about us, we'll be severely disappointed. We will. We do fail each other regularly. God never fails. But as God does act disrupting our lives, as he did to the early church, should we be surprised how he acts if we don't cooperate with him? See, this is coercion. It's not. This is correction. God disciplines those that he loves. This comes from love. Coercion comes from greed, springing out of pride. God's love was so great he gave his son. He won't let us treat that gift of his son lightly. He will achieve what he purposed for us, for the church, even by the most drastic measures that he has to take if we try to resist him. God wants us to give up our lives for him. Does he have to put us to death to achieve that? We need to take warning from the Jews, the Israelites. Romans 9.6 says, For not all that are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all children of Abraham are his offspring. It's not the children of the flesh who are the offspring of God, but the children of the promise that are counted. It's the same with the church. Not everybody in the church is a Christian. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a follower of Christ. Not all Israel is Israel. Lots of people in the church have collected, collectively got together and built amazing edifices, amazing cathedrals, a crystal palace in America for Jesus, who on this earth had nowhere to lay his head. For God, who does not dwell in houses made by human hands, this is for their own egos, to show what mighty men they are. For their namesake. Functional buildings aren't wrong, but when we get carried away, if they become a monument, they become a tower of Babel. On earth, God dwells in his people, in their hearts. Paul says you can speak with the tongue of men and angels, but if you have not love, then you are a clanging brass and a sounding symbol, Many talk to talk. But many of us don't walk the walk. Those towers built in the Middle East were called ziggurats, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T-S, not the thing you smoke. And they had often had nothing inside of them, except they were filled up with dirt and rubble. The only thing was a little room was at the top with a table and a bed where the God could come and rest and look down on his kingdom. Many of us present very well as Christians, look impressive, but our lives are about ourselves. I expect worldly people to be full of themselves and to be always talking about themselves. That is the most interesting thing they can think of. But I believe Christians who are full of the Lord Jesus Christ should do much better than that. But do we? Is our life a tower impressive on the outside? Looks very religious, but on the inside, it's all about us, full of self and the rubbish of the world. And we sit there on top of all of our pride, taking our ease, looking down of others and thanking God that we're not like them. Or has the Lord come down and acted, turned our lives around from being focused on us and what we do? And now it's focused on him and what he has done. Have we left off building a tower for our namesake? Our whole desire now is it to see God's name lifted up and honoured. We say that's the case, but is it reflected in our words and deeds? Our conversation reveals who we are about. God came down to Paul on the road to Damascus, this man who could boast about life, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, changed him from one breathing threats and murder to God's people, to the greatest teacher and evangelist since the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven. As God acted In our lives, completely turning them around, making it part of his story. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Just one last thing about uh, nations and about being God's people. Romans eleven thirty 30 to 36. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so Israel too now have been disobedient, in order that they, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. You go, What? What? God consigns us to disobedience so that he might have mercy upon us. God consigned Israel to disobedience so he could show mercy to the Gentile nations. By the same mercy shown to us Gentiles, Israel may also obtain mercy. What is our reaction to how God brings mankind's history, our history, into line with his history? His story is about grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for both Jew and Gentile, not by works of law so that no one could boast. Our story needs to become his story. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and in him are all things. To him be glory forever. Thank you.